Moncrief on News Talk. Scientists from the University of Cambridge have discovered that our bowel movements have not changed much since the Old Testament. A study inspecting early toilets in Jerusalem has shown that the same form of diarrhoea many of us experience now has been around since before Jesus himself. I'm joined on the line by Professor Piers Mitchell, who runs the Ancient Parasites Laboratory in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Cambridge, and he's going to tell us more. Welcome to the show, Piers. Hello. So tell us... Tell us how all this started and how you found these bacteria. Well, um, I've been working with uh, colleagues at the Hebrew University, oh, sorry, uh, uh, Tel Aviv University and uh, the um, Israeli Antiquities Authority. And um, in recent years, they've excavated two 7th century BC uh, toilets from the uh, south part of, of Jerusalem. And uh, these are very special because they have stone toilet seats back at a time when most people couldn't have afforded that kind of luxury and they would have either used a wooden toilet seat or, or, or just to hold in the ground. So these are like so for elite people, these would have been very wealthy people. That's right. People. So, okay. so these were in, in very expensive properties that only the wealthy could um, uh, live in. But consequently, it means that we can identify these uh, thousands of years later because the stone toilet seats acts as a red flag to say, okay, there's something exciting going on here. Does and the does do these bacteria or these parasites do they live better in the stone? Or well, we looked at the soil that's underneath these stone toilet seats that would have effectively been a cesspit. Okay, and some kind of uh, uh, intestinal um, organisms you can identify with a microscope. So the eggs of intestinal parasitic worms, for example, survive quite well. But we were studying the protozoa that cause dysentery, and these are single-celled uh, parasitic organisms that are quite fragile and they get deformed and, and crushed and split uh, over the centuries in the ground so you can't spot them very easily with a microscope. Mm-hmm. So we used a technique called ELISA where we use antibodies that are unique to specific proteins that are made by different past in, in, infectious pathogens. And we tested for a number of different causes of dysentery and some were negative, but the one that we found repeatedly positive was Giardia duodenalis which is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a common cause of dysentery today. Wow, okay. So you're testing it, you're looking for the antibodies or you're using an antibody to look for this infection in the same way that we might use, you know, like a a PCR test to look for a COVID infection. And you're finding that these parasites are, the remnants of these parasites are still alive. How, How did people get dysentery back then and how are they still getting it now? So dysentery is normally spread by when feces contaminates the food you eat or the water that you drink. So now we, of course, understand how infectious diseases were spread. So we wash our hands and we might boil our water and we wash our vegetables and things. But two and a half thousand years ago, people had no idea how these things were spread. And so they didn't understand about those important things. So some people would have had toilets, but there was no sewage system. There was no... uh, clean running water, people didn't have soap to wash their hands and all all the things that helped to reduce our chance of getting uh, diarrhea and infectious intestinal diseases today. And so, uh, especially in the Middle East where there are also lots of flies that are very good at at, at spreading organisms from feces onto, you know, they land on your food or or on your hands and so on. All these things can contribute to uh, people in the past getting uh, dysentery. Would there have been a lower rate of it among the wealthy or the fact that you've found evidence now of these parasites in the cesspit of the wealthy 
homeowner, is that an indication that they were not uh, immune to it? Well, certainly if you had an effective sanitation system because you were wealthy, then you might expect people to have had less gastrointestinal diseases. However, you know, this is a very long time ago. We haven't been able to study the toilets of the poor and compare with the toilets of the rich to see if there's any difference in the kind of diseases that they were having. Um, but uh, certainly at times when you didn't understand how diseases were spread, you could potentially argue that the rich would have been at the same risk of getting these diseases as the poor because they wouldn't have known how to intervene even if they had the money to do so. I know we're talking about a time long before like printing press or any sort of, you know, um, written history. Well, maybe some written history, but are there ancient medical document documents about about people's intestinal issues back in this time? Absolutely. So the fascinating thing about the location of our research is it's in the Middle East. And the Middle East was the area where people first invented writing. So in the fourth and third millennium BC in Mesopotamia, which is now what is Iran and Iraq, people started making little triangular shaped dents in wet clay and then drying it. And that was how they invented writing in the form of cuneiform text. And by the second and third millennium BC, we start to have medical texts written in Mesopotamia. And of course, their understanding of medicine is very different to today, and they had no idea what infectious diseases were caused by. But they do describe people who had diarrhea and who had abdominal cramps and abdominal pain and fevers. So we know that they were aware of what we now understand to be infectious diseases that would cause diarrhea, such as dysentery. And now we can actually look from a biomolecular way and look back and say, well, some of those cases that these medical practitioners were writing about 3,000 years ago, we can actually tell some of them would have been Giardia. Okay. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because they, you know, when you know, when you think about how little humanity knew at the time in terms of sanitation and how we have managed to survive until today, it's it's quite, it's quite fascinating. What else uh, in the ancient parasites laboratory what else do you look into? It's, a, it's such a specific, it's such a specific title. Well, of course, there are lots of different parasites that affect people. Um, we have intestinal worms. We have the protozoa that cause dysentery, the protozoa that cause diseases like malaria. Uh, and there were ectoparasites on the outside of our skin, such as head lice and body lice and human fleas and things. So there are lots of different organisms that can parasitize humans. And if we can study them at different time periods, different geographic locations around the world, and if we can compare people living different lifestyles, you can then start to say, okay, this lifestyle actually seems to have increased the risk of this disease or protected you against these disease in really ancient societies. And that helps us to understand how early civilizations may have been burdened by the diseases that, that they were experiencing. And tell me about how they are preserved. So we've known that like with this, the soil underneath the toilets in, in, in ancient Jerusalem, you are able to use this antibody to, to search for the parasite. But do these survive from ancient times or what other methods do you use? Well, the actual organisms will all die within a year or two after being deposited in the toilet. But certain parts of these organisms can still be identifiable to modern science. So sometimes the tough outer shell might be visible using a, a, a digital light microscope. Sometimes we'll use antibodies to detect particular proteins, as we did for this study for dysentery. 
and sometimes ancient DNA will be preserved. And if you can find the parts of the DNA that are unique to a particular ancient pathogen, then that helps you to identify that those pathogens were present in the past as well. Do you come across many um, parasites or pathogens that no longer exist, that you can't really identify, but that may have, you know, wiped out an entire race of people? Well, certainly ancient DNA analysis has identified how organisms have evolved. So we can see that there are mutations and changes in the DNA of a known pathogen compared with today. What's trickier is to work out if there's a pathogen from the past that doesn't exist anymore, because it's hard for us to know if that was a pathogen or if it was just a commensal bacteria or fungus or other organism in the soil that happens to just be living there. Because if it doesn't cause disease today, it's hard for us or the computer programs that help to guide us as to detecting these ancient um, organisms to realize that it was a pathogen. So it's obviously uh, great potential for diseases to have evolved and then died out or to have been pathogenic in the past and made people ill, but today potentially just be commensal and not make you ill. Uh, but these are quite complicated things to determine from the past. But hopefully over the next 10 or 20 years, we'll get much better at differentiating which organisms in the past actually made people ill and which might have been the commensal organisms that we all have on our skin and other places and we just live with but don't make us sick. Drawing heavily on the plot of Jurassic Park, is it possible to study um, ancient diseases, ancient parasites and in doing so, you know, re-enliven them, reactivate them so that they may attack humans today? I think everyone that's watched Jurassic Park would know that that would be a really daft thing to do. So I don't think anyone is trying to do so. Certainly they are reconstructing the genome of ancient organisms so that you can then compare ancient tuberculosis or ancient leprosy or ancient uh, bubonic plague with modern strains. But I think uh, the the idea of bringing those ancient diseases back to life would uh, certainly be something that most ethics committees would think would be a bad idea. Yes, but if it's possible, there's always going to be someone. Um, My final question to you is, if we know that, you know, today a bout of diarrhoea for for someone in, you know, the developed world, it's not a very big deal. There's medication we can easily access to sort it. In In ancient times, was this something that killed people that I know in even today children are very susceptible to becoming dehydrated and and, and from dying from dysentery and uh, severe diarrhea but would this have been something that would have wiped out you know villages and towns well you're absolutely right that children are much more susceptible to dying from giardia and other forms of dysentery than is the case for um, uh, older people Um, however the fundamental aspect of uh, how it's going to make you sick is uh, is a complex thing to, to actually study and investigate. Okay, so it's hard to know how, how severe it was. Well, certainly the ancient Mesopotamian texts don't show any signs of them understanding uh, how to treat it. Okay. So instead of doing the modern treatments where, for example, we would rehydrate a child, give them salts and sugars, try and keep their temperature down with paracetamol, the ancient uh, Mesopotamian texts uh, just have incantations that you can say over the sick person, hoping that it will help them to get better. But they had no real concept that it was an infectious organism causing the dysentery. Uh, and so their treatments wouldn't have, have had any uh, beneficial effect that we could understand from a modern point of view. Wow. Well, here's to uh, 
advances in, in medical treatment. Dr. Piers Mitchell, who is from the Ancient Parasites Laboratory in the Department of Archaeology at University of Cambridge. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to talk to you. Moncrief, weekdays at 2pm on News Talk.